We are in Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160 this morning. And as I said, um, I think the, the central theme of this passage is revival. But before we can get there, there is there's several layers we're going to unpack this morning. I ran into Clyde before service, and I told him I actually had quite a few different things that I really stumbled over as I was trying to study this passage. And I told him that those end up being the most fun sermons for me or my worst sermons. So... I'm not sure which one it is. And then Clyde said, well, you might confuse us. And I said, well, I might confuse myself this morning um, because I am going to try to walk you through my logic as I worked in this text. Um, But before we do anything, let's read this passage. I'll give you a second to get there in your Bibles. Um, Psalm 119, and we're going to be in verses 153 through 160. can't believe we're almost done with Psalm 119. Um, I really do, I'm starting to understand, I think, some of my misunderstandings of this psalm. I think I just had a way oversimplistic view of this psalm, and now that we're coming to the end of it, I'm like, I could maybe preach this psalm at some point in the future. Now that I have preached through it, I feel like I'm almost getting ready to be able to do that for you. Um, But we're in verse 153. Let's, Let's read this together. This is his prayer to the Lord. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. All right, so I'm going to lay out for you where we're heading this morning because I think that'll kind of give you some sort of like you're going to have to follow my train of thought. If you lose me in the first 10 minutes, I'm not going to lie. You're going to be lost. So you're going to have to stick with me for the first 10 minutes. And then if you can stick with me, I think you'll be okay. But I'm not going to lie. The first 10 minutes, I am going to unpack a whole lot. So if you don't catch everything, just write down references. Um, That's totally fine. And if you have questions later and you disagree with something, whatever, that's fine. We have plenty of time. We're going to be dealing with some of these same questions when we dive into the book of Romans again, because we're heading into Romans 4 after this. If you don't remember, that's where we were. We finished Romans 3, um, and we're heading into Romans 4. So you're going to have to stick with me. I also drank my normal amount of coffee, and then Aaron gave me his um, much higher caffeine level coffee this morning. So if you can't tell, I, I'm, I'm here and I'm ready to go. I hope you can grab on and run with me. Um, Because here's the three goals. First goal, salvation in the Old Testament. How does it work? How is it like salvation in the New Testament? Do we talk about it completely differently or is it the same? Where does it differ? We're not going to answer every question there. I'm just going to say that. We can't do that. Um, That would take 
a long time to unpack all of the passages to answer that question well, but we are going to start dealing with that more as we dive into Romans 4. So I, I want to start prepping us for how do we start thinking about salvation in the Old Testament, and how is it like salvation in the New Testament, or how is it completely different? Hopefully I'll answer some questions there, um, and I think you'll understand why I'm asking that question here in a little bit. Um, secondly, you probably didn't catch it, but let me just read this verse to you, 153. I understand. When somebody reads a passage, there's just so much information. But look closely at 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, because I do not forget your law. Why in the world would the psalmist say, God, look at this good thing that I am doing, and save me because of that. I, I don't normally talk to God like that. I don't know if you do, but normally when I pray for God to save me from something, I say something along the lines of, God, I know that you love me. Please save me from this thing because only you can. I don't normally say, God, I've done, I've done a whole lot of Bible reading this week. Like, save me because I'm building my life around your word. I don't normally talk like that. And I'm guessing you probably don't either. This is probably a foreign... And, and Vernon, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is Vernon pointed this out last week. There was something similar in the passage before. So this is something the psalmist does um, somewhat regularly in this, in this very, very long chapter. So I want us to, to start to understand how our good works can and should give us confidence that God will save us. And, and we're going to unpack that. Don't, don't mishear me yet. Like, give me some time to build my case um, from the New Testament too. Um, and then lastly, I want us to be able to understand this word revive, if you're in the NASB, or if you're in the ESV, it's give me life. Um, same word, it's used three times in this passage. I want us as a church and as individuals to feel the sense that the psalmist has at the core of this section that we need God to revive us. And we're going to have to unpack what he means by that. And that's why we have to start to unpack how are we saved in the Old Testament and how does it relate to us as New Testament believers, or does it? Those are, those are the questions that I have been wrestling with as I started to unpack this. Because to be honest with you, I, I told Andrea early in the week, I said, oh, this is going to be such an easy sermon for me. I've got a three-point sermon right here. Give me life according to your promise. Give me life according to your rules. And give me life according to your steadfast love. That's a perfect three-point sermon. And then I started trying to make the sermon fit that, and I was like, no, that doesn't work after all. Because I, I think you have to unpack these other layers, or we're going to be jumping into something where we might walk away with something encouraging, but it'll be something we don't understand. And I want to help us understand this base layer before we start building up on top of it. Um, so that's, what I, that's my goal. Um, those are the three goals. They're probably too lofty, but it's what I'm going for, so hang with me. Ten minutes. 
Look on my affliction and deliver me, because I do not forget your law. I think the first question we have to ask is what kind of salvation is he asking for? Is he asking for, and we need to define terms. Okay, so if you say that you are saved, generally in a Baptist church, when we talk about somebody getting saved, we mean that moment that they were converted. Like they put their faith in Jesus, and then God, by his grace, simultaneously, they put their faith in Jesus, they are saved. The Bible uses, and we even read it, the term regenerated. We have been, at the moment of conversion, taken from death to life. That's Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, and he uses that language that we read perfect for us this morning. Thank you so much, Vernon. You did so good in picking these passages. Um, We go from death to life at the moment of conversion. That's, that's, That's saved. And we have to ask, when the psalmist says, revive, 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 or give me life, give me life, give me life, is he talking about that kind of salvation? Because if he's talking about that salvation, then it means he's not a believer yet. It means he hasn't been regenerated yet. It means he hasn't been born from above yet. So the first thing we have to start to understand in this passage is we have to ask the question, has the psalmist been saved? And I imagine for some of you guys, you'd go, is that the way we talk about Old Testament believers? Were they saved like this or were they not? And that's a good question. It does shape this. And also, you might want to say, well, they got the law in the Old Testament. Weren't they saved by obeying the law in the Old Testament? That's a a misunderstanding I think a lot of people have, so I want to unpack that. Because at first blush, you read verse 153, and you go, the psalmist is asking God to save him because he's working, because he's obeying, because he's keeping the law. And you have to ask, is that the way this works? Okay, if you say yes, so if we say that the psalmist is asking for salvation, that that salvation we talk about when I say, I got saved in high school, I think, I, I don't know for sure, but that's when I really felt like the Lord was transforming my heart and life. I think I was saved in high school. There was a moment that I was saved, whether I know the exact moment or not, the Lord did give me faith. And my life from that point forward was forever changed, even if I didn't recognize the exact moment. Regeneration occurred. Is the psalmist asking for that moment to occur for himself, or has it already happened for the psalmist? I want to help us with this by taking us to a familiar passage, a passage we just studied, Romans chapter 3. I think this will help us clarify this question. Has the psalmist been born from above, born again? Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 10. And this is a collection of Old Testament quotes. So if you wonder if this applies to Old Testament believers, Paul is actually picking and pulling out verses from the Old Testament to make this argument. And he's talking about Jews and Gentiles both who have not been regenerated, that they are in their sins apart from Christ. So these are unregenerated people. All are under sin apart from Christ. 
And then he says this in verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to, de to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3 is describing which people in that section. Unsaved people, unsaved Jews, and unsaved Gentiles. People who have not been saved, regenerated, born from above. Now let me ask you, we just read this section in Psalm 119. Actually, we've been reading Psalm 119. Does the psalmist have fear of God before his eyes? Okay. Does the psalmist seek for God? Okay. Does the psalmist have righteousness in his life? Is the psalmist doing righteous things? Yes or no? Yeah. There's good works in this guy's life. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't like you're talking to Joe down the street and Joe is like, oh yeah, I'm, I love God. No, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing and saying these things about his experience of God. So I think it's safe to say we can trust that he's not just self-deluded. How do people go from not being righteous, from not seeking after God, from not doing anything good, to seeking after God, to doing righteous, to, to, to not having the fear of God before their eyes, to having the fear of God before their eyes. How do we have that transformation? What has to occur? Regeneration, right? Salvation. So let me ask you, was the psalmist born from above? He'd have to be. Because in the Old Testament, they weren't more righteous than we were. They didn't get to God on partly their own strength. And then us in the New Testament get to God only by grace. They needed grace just as much as we do. And that's why at the end of Romans 3, if you remember when Clyde was preaching, God had saved the Jews in the Old Testament, if I can say it this way, the same way he saved us. By putting those sins on Jesus on the cross in God's divine forbearance. That's the language that Paul uses there. And if you still have questions, well, does it really work that in the Old Testament they were saved by grace through faith alone? What would Paul say in Romans chapter 4? How did salvation come to Abraham? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, we come into this passage, and I think from the get-go, we have to understand that we are not talking about an unbeliever who is asking God to save him for the first time. We're talking about a believer who has already been saved, and so when he asks for God to save him, he's not talking about regeneration. And, and we get these terms all mixed up because, honestly, the Bible uses them sometimes interchangeably. And if we're going to understand what's happening, sometimes we have to divvy up and really understand, well, in the context, is he talking about regeneration 
Or is he talking about this final salvation that's coming? And I think we can say with a, a heavy degree of certainty, he's talking about this final salvation and this ongoing sanctification in this passage. Did you guys track with that, or did I totally lose you? I'm going to pretend I totally did not lose you. Um, and if I did lose you, here is what, what I think you, you need to understand. If you don't understand anything else that I just said, we're talking about a believer who is praying to God about this final salvation to come and also asking God to keep transforming him. This is not an unbeliever asking to be saved for the very first time. So when he says, give me life, he's not talking about Ephesians 2. He's not saying, transfer me from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son like Colossians 1 talks about. He's talking about, God, I have indwelling sin. I need you to keep reviving me to keep filling me with your spirit, like the New Testament talks about. This is not asking for the Holy Spirit that you receive at conversion, but a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's where I think we need to make these distinctions so that this passage is helpful to us and not just completely confusing. So, this is my, so that first one, if you lost everything, that was my difficult Old Testament theology. I hope it helped a little bit to kind of piece some things together. We will spend more time here because the New Testament does say that the Old Covenant has passed and that we are in the New Covenant. And we're going to have to unpack that. We have to, to understand what Paul's doing in Romans. But at the very least, we can say with confidence that this guy is a believer and he is asking the Lord for, for continued help in his life. Which brings me to my second point. Now that we have established that, I hope that's, that's helpful and clear. I want us to see the place that our God-produced good works have in our confidence in God's salvation for us. I know that was a terribly worded sentence. I'm so sorry, Jamie, our teacher. Um, but our, our good works, as believers do have a place in us being sure that God is going to finally save us. Let me, let me unpack that for us. Psalm 119, 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me because I do not forget your law. Verse 157. But I do not swerve from your testimonies. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. The psalmist has been regenerated. And so because the psalmist has been saved, because the psalmist has been regenerated, he now does love God, right? Remember 1 John, how do we know that we are children of God? If we love God and keep his commandments, he who makes a practice of sinning is not a child of God, John says. James goes so far as to use the language of justification. He says that we are justified by works. We're going to have to come to that when we hit Romans chapter 4 because Paul says that we are not justified by works and we're justified by faith. We're going to get there. Um, but here's what I think is actually happening here. The psalmist recognizes 
God, you have saved me from my sin. We've already established he is a believer. And because he is a believer, he has a transformed heart. Because the psalmist is a believer, he does love God. He does love God's commandments. If you notice those, those, the, the lines that I read where he lists off his good works, Spurgeon pointed out to me, but I'll read it to you again because I thought it was really insightful. I do not forget your law. I do not swerve from your testimonies. Consider how I love your precepts. In none of those does he say, I have perfectly obeyed your law always, God. Instead, he says, God, my life, it centers on your law. I love your word. This is how we know that we're children of God, if we love God and keep his commandments. And the whole point of 1 John, if you remember, John is trying to help us understand and, and believe and know if we are children of God. And so, if you are walking with the Lord, if you do love God and do keep his commandments, if you can say, I don't forget your law, God. I don't swerve from your testimonies. If you can say, look how I love your precepts, God. If you can say those things, what is true of you? You are saved. You have been regenerated. If you have been made a child of God, what does God do for his children? He always saves and causes his children to persevere to the end. Always. God saves his children in the same kind of way that because I have children, I want to protect them and preserve them. God, who actually has the power to protect and preserve us because we are his children, we can be confident that he will save us. So I think it's totally right for the psalmist as a believer to say, God, look on my affliction. Look at all of these persecutors, all of these adversaries. Look at these faithless people. Save me from all of this, God, because I'm your child. Please save me from this. I think it's totally right for him to pray like this. And I think even the New Testament would lead us to pray like this. That as we, like the passage we read together, as we seek out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we start to recognize, God, you are transforming my heart, God doesn't do that for unbelievers. God does not give unbelievers new hearts. But he does transform and continue to make his children look more and more like himself. So there is some confidence to be gained if you start seeing the Lord work in your life. On the flip side of that, what should you ask if you don't love God, if you don't love his commandments, if you are living in sin? What should you ask? Am I really saved? This is so important. Because God always, if you are connected with him, if we are in the vine, as the branches, what will happen? We will bear much fruit. But if we are not connected with Jesus, if we have not been saved, then we shouldn't be surprised when there isn't fruit. 
And this doesn't mean that believers don't fall into sin. 100% believers do fall into patterns of sin. But God, in his kindness to us, does not give us confidence that we are his when we go into seasons of sin as believers. So maybe if you fall into a season of sin, you say, well, I must not be a Christian. That's not necessarily true. But I will say, if you make a practice of sinning, you can be confident. You can be confident if you make a practice of sinning that your confidence that you belong to the Lord will be removed. And you can also be confident that God is going to come after you. This is actually, I think, something that God has used in my life on many occasions when I fell into seasons of sin. He took away my confidence that I was really a child of God, and then it brought me back to him saying, God, please save me. And it wasn't that I wasn't really saved, but he, in his kindness to me, didn't want me to feel comfortable in a pattern of sin. At the same time, you have every reason to fear and tremble if you are in sin. Because God's children look like him. Okay, there is a place for God-produced works to impact our confidence in our final salvation. God will save his children. So if you are walking with him, you're not saved because you're walking with him, but you look like your father in heaven. Which then I think we can finally get, now that we've dealt with these kind of difficult issues in this passage, and probably this isn't the first passage that's had these issues, but they just didn't register for me like they should have. We need an urgency for God to revive us as Christians. We've already established this guy is a believer, and he is walking with the Lord. So this isn't a guy who's in the midst of deep, dark sin. This isn't a guy who's in the midst of spiraling, walking away from the Lord. This is a guy who's walking with the Lord, who by his own declaration, I do not forget your law. I do not swerve from your testimonies. I love your precepts. This is the kind of guy I want to be that I am often not. And even this guy says, God, give me life. Give me life according to your promise. Give me life according to your rules. And give me life according to your steadfast love. I know in the NASB, it's revive me. And revive, that is like a picture of resurrection, right? Like this feels like Ephesians 2, but we've already established it's not. But at the same time, I think what we are supposed to realize is the salvation that is coming for us is going to be so incredible, so massive, that just like the apostles, when they're walking with Jesus in the book of John, over and over again, it says, and then they believed, and then they believed, and then they believed. We need to have a dependency on the Spirit of God working through His promise, His rules, In his steadfast love, we need to have that kind of dependence on God that is so deep, so heavy, that we're just saying, Lord, please do a new, fresh work in me. And sometimes, I think in our circles, because we have such a, a particular view thinking salvation happened, we forget that salvation in the Bible is also happening. 
It happened in the past, absolutely. We were regenerated. But at the same time, whether you call it sanctification, if you use the language of deification, if you want to go that route in kind of leaning into the way that Peter talks about we are becoming partakers of the divine nature, however you start to cut into these words, what we do know is we, if we are believers, are being made into the image of our Savior. And the day is coming where our bodies that crave sin against what the Spirit wants, there's a day that our bodies are going to be dealt with. And that God is going to even resurrect our bodies to look like Christ's body. Not tempted by sin, not craving sin, completely made after the image of our Creator. Fixing everything that the fall messed up. And I think that's what the psalmist is starting to touch here. Lord, even though I can pray to you, look on my affliction and deliver me, because I don't forget your law, man, I long for so much greater salvation than this. I long for you to be with me as my God, like Revelation talks about. I long for the new heavens and new earth. I long for salvation from my sickness. I long for salvation from my temptations. I long for the day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. I need you to give me life according to your promise, according to your rules, and according to your steadfast love. Now you might notice that all three of those, it's the exact same phrase, and then the word at the end changes. I don't know... I mean, it is Hebrew poetry, so I don't know if the psalmist is intentionally making his promise and his rules and his steadfast love, if he's trying to parallel those for us where we should see them as equivalents. But I think something he is doing is showing us that God's promise and God's rules are not coming from a heart that is anything but consistent with his steadfast love towards us. And this is helpful when it comes to walking with the Lord. If you truly believe that every command that the Lord gives is for your good, if, if you truly believe that God has never said anything that is not consistent with his steadfast love for you, even when your flesh craves sin, you can say, Lord, revive me. Help me understand Help me have new life according to this promise. New life according to your rules. New life according to your steadfast love. I don't want um, us to have the kind of approach to God that I think so many, so many, I'm just going to say because this is my tradition, so many Baptists have. God saved me in the past, and that was sufficient. He saved us, and he keeps on saving us, and we keep on pleading for him to save us. And we can be sure that he will do it. But that does not stop us from depending on it. That does not stop us from begging for it. So I gave you three things. I hope it was helpful. Um, a framework for the Old Testament theology as we move into the book of Romans I know that that's going to be something we're going to have to wrestle with, make some distinctions that are difficult. Um, 
but I think we need to, to think hard on that. I think we need to start looking at what has the Lord done in my life and, and how might that comfort me and give me confidence that he has truly saved me? Or on the flip side, should I look at my life and ask the question, because we all should, am I really his child? And then lastly, we need God to work daily in our lives. And we need to plead with him as though every second of perseverance in our faith depends on him. Because it absolutely does. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for this week of having a text that didn't make sense to me, so I had to dig deeper. Lord, I pray that um, your word, your promise, your steadfast love this morning would revive us. And we ask that you would revive us. We do believe that the sum total of your word is truth. And that that truth, because of your spirit working in us, produces more and more life in us. Lord, as we talk about doctrines and theology that is beyond our understanding, we thank you because you have taken spiritual truths that are way beyond what we could ever fathom and you spoke in a way that we could hear them. We pray that you would help us, that you would give us confidence in in what you have done in Christ, how you have saved us, and that you will finally save us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.